point where we have finished the early part of the ministry with Jesus and John the Baptist were together down south. Uh, Jesus has come north. Uh, Gospel John indicates that that's not the only place Jesus was. He probably did travel back and forth to Jerusalem. And Mark and the other Gospels kind of hint at that. But for the most part, the narrative, uh, Jesus has centered himself in the town of Capernaum. Uh, there in the north uh, west corner of the Dead Sea, he's traveling around with his disciples. So uh, last week we looked at the healing stories. Uh, today we're going to take a little bit different take, and then starting next week we'll begin to look at the teaching, and we'll be doing many, many weeks on that. As you know, start flipping through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there, Jesus does different kinds of things, so there's different aspects to his ministry. Um, in today's world, if you go to Logos bookstore or other bookstores, you're more than likely to see a focus on the teaching of Jesus. I think it's probably the part of his ministry that's the most accessible to us, that's kind of the easiest to relate to. But as we talked about last week, in the first century, Jesus probably would not have been known primarily as a teacher. That is not what it would have gotten people's attention, attracted crowds to him. Uh, if you're living in a world where there is no antibiotics, and somebody is reputed to have the ability to heal, a crowd will come to you. And that's exactly what we have. Uh, he is, according to Josephus, known as a worker of wonders. And the New Testament uses a couple of words. One is dynamis, uh, from which we get the word dynamite, uh, deeds of power. And do you remember what the other word was? Because I just forgot. <laughs> but it's, that, so it's kind of the idea of wonders again. That he, can, he has the oh, authority. He has authority over the demons. Uh, so wonder worker. Today what we want to do is we want to look, uh, moving from the miracles over to the teaching, we want to hit a, a third area of his ministry. And this is one that's not as well known until you get to Jerusalem. And when you get to Jerusalem, you begin to immediately realize that Jesus did a lot of this, but he actually was doing it up in Galilee, which, which is uh, something we want to just take a few moments to look at. Um, What's striking about this aspect of his, his uh, ministry is it places Jesus squarely in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. The prophets are the ones who did these kinds of things we're going to talk about. Uh, many of them, particularly Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah did more of this than anybody in the Old Testament and then until we have Jesus, and Jesus does it more than anybody in the New Testament. What we're talking about is something called symbolic acts. So you know the story of Palm Sunday, right? Jesus gets on a donkey. <laughs> he goes, to, uh, which fulfills scripture. He goes down the Mount of Olives, fulfilling scripture. He enters the East Gate, fulfilling scripture. So all three of those are symbolic acts designed to send a message to the crowds. And we know that the crowds actually heard it by their reaction. And we'll be looking at that in a few weeks. These things we're going to talk about are, are, for the most part, provocative. They're designed to get people's attention, and they're designed to put them on the edge of their seat if they're sitting down. And many of them are, in the context of the first century, shocking. I mean, this is the kind of thing you'd start elbowing your neighbor going, did he really do that? You know, uh, And what he's doing is he's sending powerful messages, and I think as we're going to see in a few minutes, part of his message is oral. Part of his message is the kingdom of God is like. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? There was a man going down to the, you know, the teaching kind of things. But another part of his message is through things that he does, 
And the two seem to kind of reinforce each other. Uh, there's no disparity here. They, they, they link together very, very closely. And again, this is part of the ancient tradition of, of Israel. Remember Isaiah? One of the things Isaiah did that was particularly striking is the way he named his children, okay? You got to get this. You got the king, and you got the Assyrian army camped around you, laying siege to your city. And Isaiah comes up and says, I want you to introduce me to my son. His name is Speedy Spoil Quick Booty. And by the way, <laughs> booty has changed in its meaning, okay? It does not mean what it means. It means, you know, that which is taken. So he's reminding the king, you don't pay attention to God. Things will not go well. And then one time we're told that Isaiah walks around Jerusalem for two to three years naked. Now, talk about being a walking billboard, you know. <laughs> There's a message here. He does that. You go over to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, remember the two yokes? Jeremiah wears a yoke of wood and goes to the king and says, if you don't obey the king, uh, you'll be taken into the yoke of slavery. And there's another prophet over there, Hananiah, who says, bunk, takes the yoke off Jeremiah's shoulders, breaks it, throws it to the ground, says, thus says the Lord, Jeremiah is a liar. Will not happen. Now you've got a problem. You've got two prophets, each saying that God says the opposite. I love Jeremiah. Next day he shows up. What did he have on his shoulder? A yoke of iron. That's how you make your point, okay. The potter and the pot talks about God being the potter, shaping Israel and stuff. And then once the pot's is finished, he said, okay, Israel, if you do not obey the Lord your God, that's how you make a point too. Buying a field, this one's interesting. Right in the middle of the Babylonian armies, this is a century after Isaiah, the Babylonian army is, is camped around uh, Jerusalem. Jeremiah goes and says, I want to buy that field over there. I'll pay top dollar for it. It's the field that the Babylonian army is camped on. Now, why would he do that? Because he saw that there was a future beyond the events that were going to happen. So these are the kinds of things that the prophets did. Uh, Ezekiel does a lot of them. Amos does. Hosea, remember Hosea and his wife. You know, this kind of thing is very, very common. What's interesting is all this is stopped about four centuries earlier. Now, whether it had actually stopped, we don't know. But what we know is the tradition in Israel, the tradition that gets reported in the book of Maccabees and in other writings, is that prophecy had ceased with the last prophet who was, final exam from Sunday school, Malachi. So our Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi and ends with a promise we're going to look at in just a second. Suddenly, first century CE, now there, there's a one or two guys in the first century BC, uh, Hanhoni the circle draws one of them, but they don't seem to be doing the kind of thing we're going to talk about, but there's a little bit, but what really happens is the first century CE, the first century AD, as we used to say, all of a sudden, after a drought of 400 years, these characters start emerging, contemporary prophets, and with them, they are going to start doing these very symbolic, prophetic acts. Now, contemporary scholarship says if you just kind of take what Josephus says and you just kind of plot it out in the timeline, uh, here's what you're going to find out. The first one out of the chute is John the Baptist. He breaks the drought. So when John appears on the, uh, out there in the wilderness, Israel has not seen anything like him for a long time. You think that would stir the pot. And it did. We're told all the sources, including Josephus, big crowd. 
He does a series of things. He appears in the wilderness. We talked about that, so we'll just review them. He is in the place, and, and remember, for, for Israel, wilderness is not desert. It is where they met God. Where did, uh, where did Moses encounter the burning bush? In the wilderness. Where did Moses go uh, wander with the children of Israel for 40 years? In the wilderness. Where is Mount Sinai? In the wilderness. Where did they get the Ten Commandments? In the wilderness. So the wilderness becomes, in Jewish tradition, symbolic with where God is. That's why you have monasteries later, you know, that where do you build them? You don't build them, for the most part, in the middle of a big city. You want to get out in the wilderness because God seems to be more real there. John the Baptist places himself. This is an actual photograph of where we think he was at. Pretty sure he was there. Because you actually, the forest on the right-hand side is Jordan. Left-hand side is Israel. And in about 20 seconds, you can walk over because it's solid rock underneath. And it's miles on up before you get solid rock again. Would be dirt and stuff. So this is one of those ancient caravan crossing places. He is uh, at the place where they made covenant. The book of Joshua says they crossed over and the first thing they did is they made a covenant with God to be faithful to God. What is, that, what is John the Baptist doing with baptism? Making a covenant with God to be faithful to God. He's got this fiery message and right behind him are the ruins of Sodom. Location, location, location. John offered baptism for the forgiveness of sins without the temple, without his priesthood. Uh, he dressed in a way that is highly provocative. Uh, you read about the, his coat of camel hair and you read about the leather girdle and immediately you jump back in the Old Testament and you know who you're talking about, Elijah. Uh, the Hebrew Bible had closed with a promise that Elijah would return just before God's kingdom would come. Malachi 4, 5, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible delay of the Lord's comes. Which is a way of saying, it appears that John the Baptist has intentionally built his entire ministry on provocative, symbolic acts. No wonder he drew a crowd. Now, we've got to jump to get John's gospel now. Again, we looked at this, but the, the John's gospel is a connector. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not say this, but John's gospel tells us in chapter 1 and chapter 3, Jesus of Nazareth was a protege, some would say a disciple of John the Baptist, that Jesus spent time with John, maybe as long as two or three years. We're not sure, but an extended period of time. And he, Jesus first appears to be within the movement of John the Baptist. Now, for that reason, it's not surprising that if you look at the ministry of John and you look at the ministry of Jesus, there are some striking similarities. There's some lines of continuity. One of them is... Jesus continues to use baptism. Now, ritual bathing, mikvah, practice everywhere. Baptism, there's only two groups we know if we did it. John the Baptist group and the group of Jesus of Nazareth. And the Gospel of John says that Jesus and his disciples continued the practice of John's baptism and continued to do that. Like John, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins without the temple. That's one of the things we want to talk about today. Some of John's disciples became the core of Jesus' disciples. That's in chapter 1, Gospel of John. At least two, probably four. The other thing that we know is that Jesus appears to have continued the practice of using these symbolic acts that sort of remind you of the tradition of the prophets. There are eight of these that, that scholars have identified that really kind of stand out. Four are related to his ministry in the Galilee. Four are related to the last week in Jerusalem. We're going to save those last four to later. 
For now, what we want to do is we want to look at his ministry of Galilee and look at these four acts. Two we've already seen, which means today we're just going to kind of reprise real quickly, look at them, but look at them in a little bit different light because when we looked at these, we were looking at them in a slightly different context. So now we want to look at these things as symbolic acts, not just as what we looked at earlier. According to the Gospels, when Jesus goes north to Galilee and starts his ministry, one of the first things he does is he does a very provocative symbolic act. Now, most of the Gospels indicate this is the very first thing he did. Luke indicates that Jesus may have had a period of ministry prior to doing this. He may have gone to Nazareth, preached there, wandered around, but very quickly he does something designed to get your attention. It would have sent shockwaves throughout the Galilee and it would have ignited flames of expectation. This is about like shouting fire or dropping a match into napalm, okay? It has that kind of incendiary kind of value. This is the kind of thing that when it's done, people instantly notice and it carries a lot of weight. Jesus begins not only by calling disciples, and Luke actually gives us a story of this very clearly. Jesus also not only calls disciples who are men and women and many of them, he then gives a group of them a descriptor. He refers to them as the 12. They're not the only disciples, and even who they are may change over time because the names change as we go forward. But clearly, a part of his following, part of his movement, is he's going to designate a group of them simply as the 12. And then he's going to walk around with them. Here are the 12. Now, they are literally, one scholar said this, they are literally walking billboards. Let me show you the 12, okay? This is first century multimedia presentation, okay? You know, not just my words, but look here. Look who's with me. Look who I'm bringing with me. During the time of Jesus, part of the hope, and we see this in many, many different writings, part of the hope that when God would finally act and finally deliver Israel and kick Rome out and all those wonderful things is that one of the things God would do would be to restore that which Israel had lost. And many sources specifically mentioned the ingathering, the restoration that the 12 tribes that they've lost most of would come back. So by choosing 12 and traveling with them, Jesus is sending a very clear message, and there's no two ways about this. The scholarship is, is unanimous in this. The message that Jesus presents audiovisually is, it's begun. That's the point of the 12, to send the message, the time of restoration is now. It's beginning. And there's no other way in the first century you could have interpreted that. It's a very clear message. It's beginning with Jesus, and it's beginning with his movement. So the first thing Jesus appears to do, or very near the first, by making this designation, is he's sending a message as to what his ministry is about. His ministry is about the restoration of Israel. All these promises we've had, okay, they're going to come to fruition now. Symbolic use of the 12 reinforces the core message of Jesus, and it's one that... Uh, the Gospels tell us. Now, the first Gospel written, we think, is? Let's go to Mark, Mark 1.15. After John was arrested, we've seen this several times, we'll see it again, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news, saying, this is the message, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come. Now, 
Some of you may know the common English Bible, the CEB, uh, which is the most recent major translation, the Methodist Church, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics, Jews, many others participate in this. Um, this is the sort of new standard that probably will replace the, the NRSV at some point. Uh, has a very striking translation of this verse. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Yeah, you, get, you get the message? Okay. That's the immediacy. Now, that message and the symbolism of the 12 are the same. One's audiovisual, one's oral, and they're designed to reinforce each other. The time had come, the waiting is over. And as we say, the Old Testament's gone, the New Testament begins. There's a major transition going on. The second symbolic act we looked at last week, which is Jesus' use of touch. Now, we did this in the context of his healing ministry, but it involves a lot more than that, so we need to kind of back up and retouch this. Uh, we associate touch that Jesus would go up to a leper or he would go up to, uh, who else would he heal? Blind, lame, demonic, possessed. And one of the most common things we say is he lays hands on them. He touches them and that they're healed. Uh, but Jesus' use of touch has at least two other meanings. We want to look at those because it's not just physical healing. It is physical healing, but it's not just physical healing. Uh, it's a powerful symbolic act that carries multiple levels. Um, at the simplest level, yeah, it's physical healing. We know that. The stories clearly indicate that there are, there's at least a social aspect. Do you remember last week we saw the, uh, yeah, the, the guy who was um, the demoniac, Gerasene demoniac, who had, whose, whose demons were legion? Um, if you touch an outcast, a leper, a sinner, a demoniac, literally it is to embrace them, literally, but it's also symbolically to include them and to restore them to community. One of the characteristics of these people is that they are untouchable. Now, that's not, a, that's not language that the, the, the Jewish tradition uses, but they literally were. You're going to go around touching a leper? No. You're going to go around touching somebody that's possessed with demons? You're not going to do that. Jesus is you know, consistently portrayed as doing that. Many of the stories, Jesus used a touch doesn't just heal them. It changes their status within the community which is what we saw last week. They moved from being an outsider and an outcast. They now move to being included. They can now, for the first time and who knows when, participate with their family and participate in their community, their village, their city, whatever it is. Uh, we saw the Gerasene demoniac. The story ends not with just with physical healing, but a restoration. It's the last two verses. Jesus has, has already done it. Everything's happened. The story's over, and then we had these words. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. Not sure if that's become a disciple or what that means. Jesus refused and said to him, go home. Which is the one thing the man could not have done prior to this. You can go home now. You can be with your friends. And by the way, tell them what God has now done for you. Social restoration. Not just physical healing. Social restoration is a major theme in all the Gospels about Jesus' ministry. He's consistently depicted as going out to the least, the last, the lost. People who are cut off, people who are isolated, people who cannot be a part of the community or their families. And the stories show him restoring them to, to the community. Tax collectors, lepers, sinners, prostitutes, and the healing stories. That's a common theme. 
It's not just that they're healed physically. There's a social component to that of restoration. There's a third dimension. There is, in fact, a religious or spiritual dimension to these stories uh, because in a lot of these stories, they involve people who are not only physically handicapped, suffering physically, have some type of ailment, and are therefore isolated from their families and their friends and their society. They cannot participate in the religious life of the nation of Israel. Can they go into the temple compound? No. Can they make an offering to God? No. They're, you know, they're, they're broken physically, they're isolated socially, and they're cut off, literally, from Israel. They are not part of Israel because they cannot participate. Because of their condition, again, they can't do the kinds of things that you might expect others could do. Uh, when Jesus touches them, he's claiming them as a part of Israel, restoring them to God's kingdom. We even have stories where Jesus then says to the person, I've healed you. Now, go to the temple and show yourself to the priest. Okay? The door is open. You can now go. Book of Acts. Remember the, the, the man who was lame from birth? Right there, one of the first things that happens in the book of Acts. He's at the base of the temple because he can't go down, and he leaps like a deer as he then goes into the temple. Okay. Touching them makes them a part of the new community. Many scholars have argued this. It appears Jesus is building the kingdom of God one person at a time through his touch. Because we get this language that you are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is with you today. Today you are in the kingdom of God after these stories happen. See it clearly? Remember the parable of the two sons? One of those great ones you get like to preach on. Remember the son who says he would obey but didn't? And the other who says he would but did not? Now you've never had children like this, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, Jesus sends the parable with an interesting way. He says this, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now what tense is that verb in? Present. Not going to enter the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God. And we see this in several passages. The implication seems to be that they are entering through the ministry of Jesus and in some cases through his touch. They literally are being transported in the kingdom. Third symbolic act that Jesus performed in Galilee was his action in forgiving sins. We've not looked at that yet. John and Jesus both forgive sins. John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, without the temple, without the priesthood, which I'm sure made him really popular in some circles, uh, Jesus is doing the same thing with a twist. There's a, there's a very big difference. In John's baptism, the implication is that God is the one doing the forgiving. All John's doing is the baptism. When you shift to the ministry of Jesus up in Galilee, we get a big shift. All of a sudden, Jesus starts forgiving directly, apparently on his own authority, which really gets the hornet's nest stirred up. Mark 2. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, this will start a theological discussion, okay? Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, how does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. It's not. There's no Jewish law against this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that, that's the crux of it. Jesus said to them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier, 
say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, walk, take your mat. And so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. What did he do? Stood up, took his mat, go home. The point of the story is, does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Apparently, he believes he does. Okay? And this is not an isolated story. If you do it publicly, you're making a statement. It's a symbolic kind of act. Um, Jesus is not making any attempt to hide this. As a matter of fact, several stories he goes out of his way to do it very, very publicly. Fourth act is something that we don't talk a lot about, but it was a big deal in the ancient world. It's the issue of table fellowship. It's one of the reasons the Romans did not like our communion service. Okay? What we're about to do after the service was in the Roman world a highly, highly offensive act, uh, which we'll talk about in just a second. Jesus is consistently portrayed as eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. You familiar with that? Sunday School 101, no surprises here. Highly controversial. Jesus takes a lot of heat for it. He's critiqued over and over. I'll just give you one. We could have a dozen up here if you want to. Chapter 2 of Mark again. When the scribes of the Pharisees, it's an interesting phrase, scribes of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who could actually read and write, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why? Why would you do that? Jesus heard them and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is a passage you know, indicating Jesus' ministry. In the Near East, eating is something that was a big deal and still is. Have most of you heard the Bill Power story? Some of you have it. It's worth telling. W.J.A. Power, Bill Power, Episcopal priest over at St. Michael's for, what, 40-plus years, per, uh, a professor at Perkins, Old Testament in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I think now he's over at Incarnation. He has to be probably close to 90 years old. What he tells a story uh, when he was a very young man, Old Testament scholar, he went to Israel, and he's one of the ones who participated, I think it was the, the dig at Jericho. But he did a couple of years, you know, if you're going to teach Old Testament, you just got to get dirty, right? You got to get down a wallow and that kind of stuff. So he's there, and in the ditch with him, in, in the trench, uh, there was a Palestinian man that he became very close to because they literally worked all day together side by side. And at one point, the man... Uh, near the time that Bill Power knew he was going to be coming back to the United States, he'd be leaving Israel and then going to uh, finish his Ph.D. and you know, become a professor. The man invited him to dinner. Bill Power says that having no idea of the implications, he said yes. If he had known the implications, he might have thought about it. And maybe he wouldn't have. He gets invited. And this, this guy is not a wealthy man. It's not a wealthy family. But what he, what he finds blows him away. This family puts on the feast of all feasts, pulls out all the stops, food they cannot afford. They don't, they don't eat like this on an ordinary basis. And so he has this wonderful banquet. And at the end of the evening, the, the father said to the man that Bill had worked with, said, now, you know in our culture what it means for us to invite you into our home to break bread at our table. And you know what it means if you say yes. Bill had no idea. Okay. <laughs> but he says, remind me. <laughs> okay. And the man says, okay, in our culture, and this was true in the first century, you don't eat with anybody. 
you're very careful who you eat with. Because in our culture, to eat with someone, to invite them into your home, to your table and to break bread, basically means that you accept them at the most fundamental level. They are your brother and your sister. It's, it's, a, it's a form of adoption. Your family. And now you are our family and we're your family. He says, what that means in our culture is this. Anything we have is yours. And we've just shared it with you. And by the way, <laughs> anything you have is ours. We have a daughter who wants to go to college in the United States of America. Bill Power funded her way. She's now a PhD teacher in a major university in the United States of America. Bill tells that story because he says, you know all this stuff in the Bible about eating? Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, about the communion service and all that kind of stuff. He said, you know, we don't think about it, but that has an original social context. And the social context is when Jesus ate with a sinner or a tax collector or a prostitute, what he basically was saying is, I welcome you, I embrace you, I accept you, you are family. And that created some problems for some people who did not want them accepted. In this culture, the most fundamental level, we see this in one story from Jesus, Matthew 11, 18 and 19. Jesus replied, John, this is the, you know, Jesus gets criticized for everything, but Jesus just makes this interesting observation. Remember John the Baptist? You took him to task because he never ate and he never drank. He was an ascetic. And you said because of that he, was, he had a demon. Now the son of man, which is language Jesus uses for himself, came eating and drinking. Good Methodist. Jesus is a good Methodist. Okay. <laughs> and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. You, know, you can't win either way. A friend. There's the term. A friend of tax. That's the issue. You've befriended these people. We don't like that. And they're sinners. The power of these stories of which there are many, lie in the fact that he chose to eat, them, eat with them and welcome them and to accept them, friend. Um, that this could even be taken to the point that, that Bill Power tells in his story that you actually are not just friend, you're family. We actually have a, at least one story of that, Matthew 25. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Remember that? The last judgment scene, they're his family. It's not the only place. We see that also in Mark 3. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. So part of what Jesus is doing is he appears to be going out of his way through these various techniques to start embracing people, start bringing them in, making them family. Now, Jesus is going to run afoul of a, of a particular attitude that was very, very prevalent in the first century. I know that we've looked at the letter of Orestes before. Some of you have seen it many times, but we're going to look at it in a slightly different context. The letter of Orestes is probably written about a century before Jesus, maybe 50 years, and this is a piece of it. There's, there's a lot of stuff in there. In his wisdom, Moses surrounded us, the Jewish people, with unbroken palisades. I'd look that up. Anybody know what a palisade is? It's one of those walls built where you stick timbers up one after another. The sharp pointy end sticking up, that's a palisade. Iron walls. It's, it's, a, it's a barricade. It's, it, it's a barrier, you know. 
Why would you do that? To prevent our mixing with any of the other peoples in any matter. To prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences. That's that language your mother used. Remember that? <laughs> he hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and milk after the matter of the law. Why do we have Torah? We have Torah to keep the bad people away and keep all the good people together. And the Torah becomes, and Jewish tradition, becomes a fence. Usually when we think about this, we're, we're talking about the ministry of Paul, we're talking about the relationship with, with Gentiles, because clearly this was used with respect to Gentiles. But it turns out that it was actually used for lots of categories of people. Jews would use it for other Jews. So down there at the Dead Sea Scroll area of Qumran, they referred to the people in Jerusalem as those people. <coughs> and the people in Jerusalem referred to the people down at Qumran as those people. Uh, it was anybody who disagreed with you. Judaism of Jesus' day, and this is no shock, this is, you know, we know this from many, many, many sources, had literally carved out huge chunks of society as people who were unclean, sinners, or bad influences. Therefore, they are not part of Israel. They are the outsider. They are untouchable at some level. This is the idea behind kosher. The kosher word kosher literally means, by the way, kosher language is not used that much at this time. But the idea is there. The term kosher means that which is fit, that which is clean, that which is acceptable. We think about it uh, has to do with what you eat. It also has to do with who you eat with. Okay? That, that's that cultural kind of thing that we see coming back in. Jesus' act of eating is like his healing ministry. It's like his touch, and it's like his forgiveness. By the way, all four are connected. All four intimately connected. Jesus appears to have systematically embraced in his ministry. I don't think you can get around this. If you just look at story after story after story, Jesus appears to have systematically gone around embracing segments of society that had been cast aside. It's the common thread that runs through everything he did. All proclaiming that the iron walls and the palisades that Second Temple Judaism had so carefully built are no longer valid. They are down. This is a message that, that Paul will pick up on and apply particularly with the Gentile mission. And that the restoration, the ingathering of the lost tribes, now the, the expectation was that the lost tribes are the people who've been scattered across the world, right? <coughs> the diaspora. Apparently Jesus had a different understanding. He was looking at the lost tribes in Israel who've been cut off, isolated, and excluded systematically. This is a message that as we now move into the teaching of Jesus that Susan will be dealing with over the next few weeks, uh, we'll be looking at. So next week, we wanna, uh, as we begin to move to the message and the kingdom of God, uh, next week, Susan's going to take us through Jesus as a teacher, how he approached teaching, what he did, his style. And then we're going to talk about the content of his teaching, which we know is the kingdom of God. And then we want to talk about his main tool, which is the parable. So Susan, we're excited. Looking forward to it. <laughs>